Are you a hopeful people? Are you a hopeful person? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful most of the time, but I can be honest with you. Um, there's times that I can feel hopeless. There's, there's times, there's situations in my life that I look back over um, the course of my life. There's been seasons where maybe a situation has gotten tough or, or the circumstances haven't changed in enough time that I found myself just kind of hopeless. The feeling uh, of that something good could happen, that's the definition of hope. Hope is just that feeling something good could happen. But there's sometimes in my life, if I was honest, there were times where I was, I was kind of hopeless. I didn't feel that way. As I was walking through my circumstances, I wasn't thinking, the horizon's got something great on it. Honestly, I just thought, another dull day, another dreary one tomorrow. A definition of hope, that something good could happen. There's not enough of it in our culture, is there? No, and, and even to bring it down to a smaller level, what we're talking about today especially, there's not enough of it just in our communities, are there? Right here, in the Illinois Valley. There's not enough of it. There seems to be a lack of it, right? If anything, if we could say, hope, is it at a surplus or a deficit? We'd say probably in the Illinois Valley, it feels like it's at a deficit, isn't it? It feels like it's lacking for most people. I don't think most people are walking through their days hopeful every day. I believe, from the bottom of my heart, that the churches, the churches of LaSalle, Peru, should be the source for hope in our community. We should be the source for hope. We should be the ones who are creating that feeling in our community that something good could happen. And I believe one of the ways that we can do it is what I'm so excited to talk to you about today. It's called Hope Week. And that's what I want to share with you today is what this means and what it looks like. Hope Week is seven days back-to-back of LaSalle Peru churches working together to radically serve our community. Multiple churches working together for seven days doing projects in our community to help make it better, make it brighter, to inject hope into it. It's happening this June, 21st through 28th, about a month from today. We're working with LaSalle, with Peru, with organizations inside of it. We're working with directors of parks, directors of libraries, all throughout LaSalle, Peru. And our goal is to partner with a handful of churches and to go into these places in those seven days and serve as much as possible in that time frame. To fix stuff, to make stuff better, to help people, and to inject hope into it. By serving together, not apart, we can do something that the community cannot ignore. If we do something, that's great. If someone else does something, that's great. But if everyone did it together in one week, seven days congruent, back to back to back, we accomplish something that nobody in the community can ignore. People say something is changing. Something is different. The reasons why we're doing this are simple. It hits two major things that Jesus cared about. Two major things that Jesus cared about. And if you've been here for very long, you know I'm pretty obsessed with Jesus. Acts Church, we're pretty obsessed with Jesus. If we see something that Jesus does, it's what fires us up as well. So the reason why Hope Week is special to us is we talk about this idea and stepping into this, this awesome opportunity to help our community. The reason why it's exciting to us is because it hits two major things that Jesus was passionate about. First, it's about serving. Jesus was all about serving. 
Man, when he was here, he made it clear that he was all about serving. It says this in Mark 10, verses 42 through 45. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, so Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. That Son of Man, that was the title Jesus gave himself. He came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus tells his disciples, you know, I know you guys are doing a whole bunch of work here and you're kind of getting this figured out with us. We're going around, we're preaching in a lot of these areas. Maybe your names are even starting to be recognized. People come up to you and they already know you. Hey, John. Hey, Peter. Hey, James. They already know you. He says, but, but don't get it twisted. Yeah, in, in the world, the more popular you get, the more important you get, the more people serve you. But he says, in, in my kingdom, we run that whole thing in reverse. In my kingdom, if you want to be greater, you don't have more people serve you. You serve more people. Instead of more people underneath you, there's more people on top of you who are needing your service. He even says, not only that, but he says, me, I mean, the, the son of God, I didn't even come to this earth to be served. I came to serve. If there was anybody who could have ever come to this earth and said, I came to be served, it was Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus, he could have shown up and he could have said, I came here to be served. Now everyone serve me. And we would all said, yeah, that, that seems about right, right? Yeah, you're the son of God. That seems right. Yes, we should all serve Jesus. Yet Jesus says, I didn't even come to be served. I came to serve others because that's what makes you great in my kingdom. That's what makes you a leader in my kingdom is serving others. We see this awesome story with it. Jesus is walking around with his disciples all the time and he'd interact with people and these interactions are, are gold that we captured as, as, as people were walking with them. They wrote down their, their eyewitnesses and John, one of the guys who was walking with them, he wrote down the story one time as Jesus and him were walking along. It's in Luke, sorry, excuse me, John 9. If you have a Bible you want to turn there, you want to flip on your phone or if you want to look up here. It says this in John 9, starting in verse 6. He sees this blind man, and it says, Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. Can we just take a step back here for a second and think that if, if you didn't know what was going to happen at the end of the story, this looks really mean, right? <laughs> He's just like, and he like smears mud on his eyes. It was okay, though. They said, is that, Jesus, is that okay? And he says, don't worry, he didn't see it coming. <laughs> it's a good joke, right? I thought so. Because the man's blind. If you weren't paying attention, that's why you didn't laugh. <laughs> he spreads the mud over the blind man's eyes and he told him, Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. We can just read right through these stories, right? Because that's one sentence. But this is a miracle. You're like, Yeah, that's a woman, right? Thank you. Whoa, right? His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, No, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, Yes, I am the same one. So this is hilarious. You got like two guys arguing in front of this guy, and you're like, Is that Bob? And you're like, No, that's not Bob. Bob's blind. He's like, I'm right here. <laughs> yes. He says, He kept saying, No, no, no. Yes, it's me. Yeah, I went to your cousin's graduation. We, I was there. It's me. And now I can see, same guy, yes, I am the same one. 
they asked, well, then who healed you? What happened? And he told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. Well, the story goes on, and I'm going to just kind of cover this in between and kind of give you the overview. But the people say, you got to go and you got to talk to then the, the chief priests, the leaders. These are the religious people. And at this time, they were kind of both. They were not only like the religious leaders, like the people in charge of the church, but these guys were almost like the surgeons at the time too. They were the guys who looked at you and told you whether or not you were clean or unclean, whether or not you were healthy or unhealthy. So when people got healed, they would have to go and present themselves to these leaders, and the leaders would declare, yeah, you're healed, or you're clean, or you're not. And when they go they have a problem with how this miracle happens because it happens on the wrong day. And it happens in the wrong way. This man, Jesus, again. And they don't really care for him. And they begin to question this miracle and they call in his parents. Parents say, I don't know, talk to him. And he just keeps saying, I told you once before. I told you again. It's just this guy named Jesus came. He touched my eyes with mud. I washed. I was healed. And finally, I mean, they're just furious at the fact because none of this glory is coming back to them. It's going back to Jesus. And they finally just say, you were a sinner from birth, and they kick him out. Basically telling him, don't you dare tell us something about God. You're an evil, rotten sinner. Get out of our presence. And this is where we jump into the story in verse 35. It says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Again, that's that title for himself. And the man answered, well, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. And he says, you have seen him, Jesus said, and he's speaking to you. Can you just stop for a minute and hear the beauty of that sentence? You have seen him. The man's never seen anything in his entire life. And he heals his eyes and he says, you've seen him. He gets to experience Jesus in a way that he never thought he would even get to experience anything. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. And Jesus gives us an example here. He meets this man where he was at, And he touches his physical needs before he touches his spiritual needs. And Jesus is giving us an example of what he does very, very often. Often, Jesus serves people before he saves people. This is a big point I need you guys to grasp. We've got two of them today I want you to walk away with. This is one you need to write down or you need to lodge somewhere up here. Jesus served people before he saved people very, very often. He meets this man's need. The man needs to see. And he heals him and he goes away. He doesn't explain everything. They said, who is this guy? And all the man knows was there was this guy named Jesus. He doesn't know about who he is yet. Jesus didn't explain everything of what he had done. Didn't explain that he was the son of God yet. Didn't try to meet him with the gospel yet. You know, because sometimes that can be it, right? If someone gets healed, they need to hear about Jesus right away. And I get that. I get that. I'm not taking anything away from the gospel. But Jesus just met his need and he walked away. And lo and behold, a few minutes later, a few hours later, whatever it was, the man comes up to spiritual opposition, and all of a sudden, he runs into a place where he walks away from an interaction wondering, am I just a sinner, a terrible sinner, with no hope of grace? As he meets these men, that's what they tell him, basically. You're a rotten sinner, don't you dare tell us about God. And then Jesus comes back and says, do you know the Son of Man? And he says, you've seen him, it's me. I'm the hope for salvation. And this man immediately says, I believe. And he calls him the Lord. You see, it's hard to share with somebody the best news in the universe, the good news, the story of Jesus, when they have no hope at all. 
If you have no hope, you don't think something good could happen, do you? If you don't have hope, you don't have that feeling something good could be around the corner. So when you hear the best news in the universe, perhaps you just take and wall up against it. Yeah, I don't think so. But see, when Jesus meets him in a physical way first, what he does is he, he injects hope into the situation. This man who had never seen for years and years and years, all of a sudden is walking and seeing. And for the first time perhaps in his life, he has hope again. Maybe something good could happen. And Jesus shows up and says, not only a sight, yeah, I know that's great, but let me tell you even better news than that. I am the Son of God, and I've reestablished your relationship with Jesus. You're not a dirty, rotten sinner. In fact, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm the Son of God, and I came here to die for you because I love you so much. You see, Jesus served people before he saved people because he primed them with hope. That's what we can do when we serve people. We can prime them with hope and not immediately throw the gospel in their faces in some sort of, now that you've received some sort of service from us, accept the gospel. I get so sick and tired of, of outreaches that churches do. I always say, I, I just say, are, are you immediately going to be preaching the gospel after you do something for people? And if people say yes, I said, I'm, I'm, un, I'm uninterested. Because I believe you need to prime people with hope first. You just need to serve them and then walk away. You need to change their taste of what Christianity is, where they say, I came, they did something for my kids, they did something for me, they were kind, they were nice, they weren't weird, and I walked away and I wasn't scared of them. And then when Jesus sets up a moment in their life where they hit that spiritual crossroads, they say, maybe there's something more to life than this. And they say, maybe I should ask those nice people from that church. Because they had hope that I, I never even felt before. And all of a sudden, you're not slamming the gospel in their face. They're coming and they're saying, can you tell me about this man named Jesus? So we can prime people with hope, and that's why it's so exciting. Paul said in Galatians, as he was writing to the church of Galatia, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those in the family of faith. I love this. Don't get tired of doing good. Yeah, maybe you've done some good before and you're busy and this, but, but don't ever get tired of doing good. And I love this. He says, do good to everyone. Kind of sounds like an Acts Church mantra, doesn't it? Love God, love everyone, right? No clarifications. I love, he says, especially the people who, you, who you're brothers and sisters with in the church. I think that's a great point because sometimes we can't even do that. But, but for most of us, that's not what we find hard, is it? I mean, we don't find hard for me to serve somebody who I'm friends with here at church and people who I run into who are Christians in my life. A lot of times, I don't, I don't have a hard time maybe servicing, serving them, but maybe I do have a hard time servicing or serving someone, excuse me, who I don't believe deserves it. Somebody who I've seen misuse it in the past. Somebody who really, really doesn't even like me or doesn't like the Lord that I serve. But Paul doesn't give any clarification. He says, do good to everyone. Hope Week is about serving because it injects hope into the situation. Serving brings hope to the people who your lives touch. That as a church, as church is, as we work together and we serve our community, we bring hope to those people. We change their perspective of what Christianity is. We knock down a wall in their life. One of the many walls that are between us, between Jesus, and their heart. 
So it's about serving. Second, not just serving, but another thing that Jesus is passionate about, unity. It's about unity. When Jesus was here on earth, man, he was, he was all about unity. He talked about it. He preached about it. He made sure people heard about it as he was talking. One time, as he was with his disciples, he began to pray. And this, this word that he says is, is so good. And I want you to catch this because it's amazing. We'll see this really cool thing at the beginning of this. In John 17, 20 through 23, it says this. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Who is that? That's you. That's me. It's us. That's e- Jesus is praying for us in this prayer. Immediate application to our lives. If you're wondering, is this about us? This is about you. Jesus said, not only for these disciples, but for everyone who will believe after them. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the, Lord, the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me, and that you love them as much as you love me. And this verse is about us, and what does he pray for? He prays for unity. He says, I pray that they would be one, that they would be connected and care for each other, just as you and I care for each other, Lord. And that as they're one, notice what he says is going to happen. He says that they would be together in such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me. He said when the world looks on, on Christians, when they see how despite the fact that they come from every different background, they look completely different, they're different ages, they have different um, political views, they have different sociological views, they have different thoughts on stuff, yet somehow they are unified unified together, even though they have different beliefs. Why is that? And God said it would bring them to the point, to the focus. There must be something way bigger that unifies them than everything that divides them. What is that? It's Jesus. I love this. Perfect unity would show the world that not only God sent Jesus, but that he loves us as well. Unity is paramount in the church. We cannot be fighting against each other as churches. We have to be unified. There's a story in the Bible where Jesus is going around preaching with his disciples. And as he is, the disciples kind of run back to him. And John especially, John runs back to him. And John was like, Jesus is like best friend. And I think he ran back to him probably thinking he was going to get like a pat on the back for this one. Because he comes and and he's like, you know, Jesus, I I got some. And he comes up and he's all excited to tell Jesus. And this is what it says in Luke 9. 49 through 50. Funny, isn't it, that this wasn't in John's gospel. It was in Luke's gospel account of John. Just saying. John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. So we saw someone out there, and they were casting out demons in Jesus' name, but we said, hey, you're not one of us. Stop that right now. He's really thinking he's probably going to get a pat on the back from Jesus, right? Good job, John. Way to keep up the good work. Make sure that we don't let this thing just spread out of control. (laughs) Jesus says, don't stop him. But he didn't say it like that. You notice there's an exclamation point. Don't stop him! He screams at him, right? 
Are you kidding me? Anyone who is not against you is for you. Jesus says, it, it doesn't matter the fact they're not part of us. If they're making my name famous, that's why we're here. It doesn't matter if they have all the details worked out, if they don't believe all the same stuff we believe, if they're not hand-in-hand, hand, part with us, if they're not against us, they're for us. Man, if, if this isn't the story of the American church right now, I don't know what is. It frustrates me to no end. Man, the, the religious, divided church will take and hear that you put out the flames of hell in somebody's life through salvation and they'll tell you that you held the fire hose wrong. I, and and it, it frustrates me so much. I can tell you, the first thing that comes to mind is, is curse words. And they bubble up and I have to catch them and push them back, back down because what wants to come out, I've been saved but I haven't been saved long enough that that still doesn't happen in there where they come down and they try to swing down and come out the mouth and you have to stop and you're like back in terrible words that I want to say to somebody but then immediately on the back side of that is the most tremendous sadness I've ever felt because I realized that they're they're more concerned about the details than about somebody's soul being saved from the eternal fires of hell and that anger quickly subsides and all of a sudden just a terrible, frightening sadness comes to my mind. That you have your priorities so out of alignment that you would be worried about those details instead of celebrating with me that someone knows about Jesus right now. Man, we do not, we do not have time to be throwing stones at each other at churches. Other churches are, are not our opposition. They are not our enemies. They are not our competition. They are our brothers and sisters in the middle of a war. That we are fighting with the enemy right now as he is capturing and drawing people back away to hopelessness every single day. And if they believe those words, John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you believe that, you're on our team. I don't care about those other details. Yeah, you don't believe in this. You believe this different than we do. Yeah, that's great. But here's the deal. What unifies us far exceeds what divides us. What unifies us outshines all of that, namely Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Without Christ, nothing. Nothing else matters. This is the big point I need you to get. Separated, the church is marginal. Separated, the church is, is, is marginal. But together, the church is unstoppable. Together, the church becomes unstoppable. When churches work together, they pool energy, and they pool resource, and they pool prayer, and all of a sudden, explosive things begin to happen. Far greater things than could happen if all of us are working separate. We give hope to the outside world, and not only that, but we finally bring clarity. The world constantly keeps looking at us and saying, you believe this, and you believe this, and you believe this, and it's just this big, muddled confusion in their brain they can't sort through. But when they see churches work together, what all of a sudden it does is it washes away all the difference, and it puts their focus on one thing. Hmm, all these churches are working together. That must mean there's one thing that unifies them. What is that one thing? It's Jesus. When we work together, we finally shine the spotlight on the one thing that matters for the world to see. 
the one thing that unifies us beyond everything else, and we put that right up front where the world can see it. Paul mentions this as he's writing the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 4, 2 through 6, he says this to them. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. And I tell you, all of us have faults, every one of us. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together in peace, for there is one body, one Spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. Let me tell you this, church. I can tell you about how we need to be unified, but I'm not preaching anything new. Let me tell you, actually, I'm just preaching a fact. We are one church. Whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not. Really, it doesn't matter. I can talk to you about unity, but let me tell you, whether you like it or not, we are one church. That's it. There's no salvation according to the Baptists, and no salvation to the, to the Catholics, and no salvation to the non-denominationals like this. There is salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be some sort of Catholic cul-de-sac and some sort of, you know, Baptist cul-de-sac and some sort of Methodist cul-de-sac. No, wrong. One city, one big old address where all of us are together. That one thing that unifies us is the only thing that matters. And we are one church. So we need to get rid of that thinking of the fact that there's competition between us. We need to kill that in our minds that another church, another church is growing. Oh, if they're growing, does that mean... Shut up. (laughs) If they're growing, Jesus is winning. If they're growing, Jesus is winning. We heard another church is growing, Cameron. What do you think? I think that's awesome. There are people dying and going to hell, and we need more people who are doing that. People will talk about that when we come in as a new church plant. People are like, do we really need a new church? I just want to just tear my hair out at that statement. Hmm. Let's see real quick. Say we have 10 or 20 or 30 churches. The average church is somewhere around 50 to maybe 100. So let's even say that every single one of them is 100 people running strong and that in that we say have 20 of them. Okay, so that means that there's 2,000. In LaSalle Pluro alone, there's 10,000 people. The combining ones of, of Utica and Oglesby and that, we have somewhere around 35,000. In our county right around here, we have a little over 100,000. I think there's a little more room. Yeah, yeah, until, actually, until 100% of the people in our community are in church, there's still room for another church plant. Yeah, absolutely. Whether we like it or not, we are all part of one church. And the reason why Hope Week is so exciting is because it embraces two of the things that Jesus cared about most. Serving and unity. And when it happens, I'm telling you, miraculous stuff can happen. As a church, we're going to step into Hope Week. And here's what this means for you. I'm challenging you today. Every single one of you, every single one of you, I'm challenging all of you. I want you right now to go into your day planner, go into your phone, and to begin marking off time during that week. To begin to cross out stuff and move stuff and say, I need to make time because I'm challenging every one of you. Every one of you needs to serve in some capacity that week. That all of us need to step forward and say, I know I'm busy, I know I have a million things, but I want to be part of this unity. 
I don't want to be the person who misses out and says, I wasn't part of that. That you say, I'm going to make a day, I'm going to carve out a night, I'm going to carve out time, I'm going to be there that day so that I can serve and I can say, I stand unified with these churches to say that I want to bring hope to this, to this community. And for some of you, I challenge you even more. For some of you, you are able, I challenge you to serve radically in that seven days. I challenge you not to show up for one event. I challenge you to serve radically. Taking a week of vacation and being there as much as possible is not too radical. Not for how awesome of an opportunity this is. I already know one guy who's doing that since last night. He says, I just said, this week, Monday, I'm going in, vacation that week. I'm going to be there to be part of it. That you would serve radically and you would say, I'm here whatever I can do because I want this community to know that we believe that there's hope, that there's a reason to believe that something's going to get better. And I want to stand with other churches and say, we're unified and we are not backing down. We're going to continue to move forward as one body. Let's show this community how much we really care. Take a second with me. Just the dream for a second with me. Clear your mind of all the other garbage that's floating in and out. I know some of you guys got to mow this afternoon. Some of you guys got to do this. And, and your brain is just swarming with all this stuff. But just, but just give, me a, give me a moment and just dream with me. What would happen if we begin to do this? And not, not just one year, but we start a pattern because that's what we do here. We don't, we don't do stuff for a quick pitch and then run. When we planted X Church, we said, how can we start a church that's here when we're all 95? It's about years from now, the church that we're building. What happens if we start this? And we don't just do it in 2015, but we keep doing it and keep doing it. What happens when the communities, their perspective on Christians begins to change from those people that yell their views at you to those people who are always out serving our community? What happens when churches begin to work together every summer and all of a sudden there's not this backbiting and competition anymore, but churches really do look at each other and believe, we're in this together. We're in this together. What happens when cities begin to have projects come up and they say, you know what, don't worry about doing that right now because every summer the churches pour out into the streets to do amazing things for our community. We'll wait and give that to them. What happens when people begin to see churches go hand in hand and say what divides us is far smaller than what unites us. We love this community and we love its citizens. What happens for those people who are hopeless today? And we begin to prime them with hope so that in a month, a year, 10 years, all of a sudden, when they run into that moment where they're questioning if there's something more, they're primed and ready to hear the gospel. And they believe something good could happen in their life because they've experienced hope. We can do it, church. We can do it. Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you so much for this vision for this calling that you placed on us and other churches. I ask, God, that you would root it down into our hearts right now. 
Lord, that you would be the one who's pushing us right now. We would feel your hands on our backs pushing us forward out of our our complacency or our mediocrity or our comfort. And we would feel your hands pushing us to say, serve. Step out, lend your hands, lend your time. Share hope. Jesus, I ask that you would let us carry the torch for this, Lord God. That our church would help set an example for other churches as well. That as we do it this first year, maybe with a few churches, Lord, that you would begin to create wins. And Lord, that it would not just be the one year, but it would be the the five year. And Lord, it would be the 10 year. And it would be the 20 year. Where we would see explosive things that we could trace back to this day where a group of people said, we step out and we believe that we can create hope in a community. Jesus, I ask that you would use us to be that primer of hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We can do this, church. We can do this. Would you join with me? Would you join with me?